This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, why are Australians having to take a second-rate vaccine for shingles? And just how second-rate is it? Why vitamin D supplements in the vast majority of people are a waste of time and money, regardless of your vitamin D levels. And I've been doing a bit of an investigation into a particular topic that you've been something of a broken record on, Norman. When it comes to COVID, we've been very focused so far on vaccines and masks, which are good things. But experts say there's more we can do to slow the spread. And it has parallels to a public health revolution that took place in the mid-1800s. In 1850 London, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing. The city was filthy. And people were basically drinking poo. The Thames was, was largely considered an, it was an open sewer. This is Dr Declan Page from the CSIRO. There was no sewage treatment, so even where there was sanitation, it all just ended in the river which then people also drew water, water from slightly downstream. Water supply was communal, with public pumps that people would visit to get water from. So certain pumps, for example, ones that were really shallow and largely connected directly to the river, would take water from the River Thames, pump through a little bit of, a little bit of sand of the groundwater and then be, basically be pumping raw sewage from, that was dumped in the Thames. This was also a time of pandemic. But rather than a respiratory disease like COVID, it was cholera, a bacterial illness that spread through, how do I explain it? People accidentally eating or drinking poo. And in 1854, London was suffering through a particularly bad outbreak. No one knew why it was happening, but a man called John Snow had a strong hunch. And he focused his attention not only on one part of London, but a single tap. And one of these taps was the Broad Street Pump. After a bit of number crunching... He was able to see the correlation between where people drew their water and cholera outbreaks. There was a very direct connection between this pump and the prevalence of cholera in the local region. And then he did something about it. And so what John Snow did is he came and he took the, the handle off the pump and put a lock on it that people would stop using it and have to go to a different one and thereby reduced cholera and was able to show that he reduced cholera incidents in that local area. It was a public health revolution that solved not only a deadly mystery, but to cap it all off, it's regarded as a founding moment of the science of epidemiology. It was a revolution within a revolution. What's all this got to do with the novel coronavirus, I hear you ask? Well, COVID is all around us and at the moment, it's only getting worse. You know, in the whole of 2020, there were just on 1,000 deaths, and yet we've had more than 7,500 deaths in the first half of 2022. It seems that while vaccination will save many lives, it's not going to be enough alone. So, do we need another revolution in public health? But this time, not in the water we drink, but the very air we breathe. Yikes, I have found myself on a bus. I mean, I chose to get on it. <laughs> it wasn't part of my plan for tonight and I am shook that I am busting to get off this bus. I just feel really vulnerable all of a sudden. Basically, I don't have the choice to get off until I get to my stop and I can't hold my breath for that long. So, yeah, pray for takes. 
hear a lot about improving ventilation, including from this guy. Have they got their ventilation right? Ventilation, taking action on ventilation. Ventilation, ventilation, ventilated environment. But we don't seem to be talking very much anymore about ventilation. But what do experts, and Norman, mean when they say that ventilation needs to be improved? How bad is the air I'm breathing? How do you even find out something like that? Well, it turns out there is a way, and the idea of how to do it came our way from a guy called Brendan. Brendan, nice to meet you. How are you doing? How are you doing? To meet you. How is our reading looking at the moment? Oh, it's fine. That's, I mean, we're outside, so that makes sense. Brendan is a keen Coronacast listener and got in touch via our Submit a Question link. So I set up a time to meet with him. We chatted for about an hour. I'd love to play you some of our chat, but I forgot to record it. Brendan lent me a CO2 monitor to carry around, with the idea being that the level of carbon dioxide in the air is a sort of proxy for how well a space is ventilated. The higher the level of CO2, the stuffier the room. The stuffier the room the higher the risk of catching COVID if a positive case is around. All right, so I've just picked up the carbon dioxide monitor from Brendan and we were sitting in a very windy, cold cafe, um, windy and cold by Brisbane standards at least, but very well ventilated. So the whole time we were sitting there talking, we had the monitor on the table and it was sort of around 4.20 for most of that. So I'm really curious to see how that changes as I go about my day and my next couple of days. Um, yeah, so I got in the car, even on this short drive, I think I'll see, see what, what difference it makes. And thus began the great CO2 monitoring experiment. The reading is saying 913 parts per million of CO2, which is actually, I think, a lot more than I thought there would be considering how few people there are in the supermarket. In the next few weeks, I travelled through airports. Pretty packed in here, but of course everyone's wearing masks and I'm getting a reading of about 810. On planes, the CO2 monitor got up to about 1500, which is in like the red zone, at right about the time where we all took our masks off to eat our food. To the gym. 1200 a couple of times. So, I mean, not great. And through meeting rooms, 2000, right in the red zone. And everyone was a bit surprised and we all sort of looked at each other like, oh my gosh, we might have COVID in this room. Um, And then I just asked if we could open the door and we did and it like dropped by half, like straight away. All the while taking detailed notes of CO2 levels. At the moment I'm just kind of feeling like, ugh, I just wish I didn't know. I want to go back to living in blissful ignorance. (laughs) I'm just tired of knowing when it's bad. And then just like is all too common these days. So here's something funny. Yesterday, my family and I went for a road trip down to the Gold Coast from Brisbane to see some family. And I just happened to look at the carbon dioxide monitor in the car as we were going down. It was like, yikes, that's high. Good thing it's just me and my immediate family. Well, guess who tested positive for COVID? This morning, one of my immediate family members, I mean, I guess I live in the same house as them anyway. It's just kind of ironic that I've got this monitor. I happened to look at it in an enclosed car. Not really a massive surprise. Feel, still feeling fine at the moment, uh, but it's just like, just timing, I guess. And um, yeah, I don't actually really know what to do with that information, but here we are. I'm a close contact. I would have been anyway, but I feel like I'm a particularly close contact given 
I think it was about 2,000 parts per million in the car with all four of us in there. Yeah, I guess I'm now monitoring for symptoms, wearing a mask and keeping my distance from other human beings again. So all in all, my little experiment was eye-opening and sobering. I was surprised how bad some places were and downright concerned at others. I avoided catching COVID, but only just. And with new stickier variants that are reinfecting people more quickly, my odds of catching this virus again are getting even shorter. So it's no wonder experts are urging dramatic action. We need the same revolution which happened in the 18th century in relation to water and cleaning the water. We now need the same revolution in relation to um, indoor air quality. This is... I'm Lydia Morawska, professor at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. I led a paper which was published in the Journal of Science titled Paradigm Shift in, uh, in Approach to Infection Control. And when she's not writing papers on infection control, Lydia, just like me, is carrying around a CO2 monitor as a proxy for ventilation. And that's because she says proper airflow is the number one thing that could help dramatically reduce and limit infection of COVID-19. Improvement in ventilation means reduction of the risk, means uh, lower number of cases and lower number of health effects. That's that's as simple as this. And there have been enough studies demonstrating this, that in environments where ventilation was uh, better, there was, in in fact, much reduced uh, number of cases. Right, so if there's so much evidence, like why aren't we seeing it being done? What are the barriers? Well, political barriers... The usual government response barriers in many situations, particularly when there isn't direct and immediate relationship between the cause and effect. If I can compare the situation with contaminated water, imagine that water in the tap is contaminated and people drinking the water would get affected basically immediately. So it's a very, very short response and lots of people immediately. So the cause and effect is very close in time and very clear to demonstrate. So therefore, there's no doubt that actions should be taken and who will be blamed if it's not taken. But in terms of infection, let's say that people are infected, several several people are infected in a particular interior. They will not get sick within a few hours. It will take a few days. And then proving that this was that particular environment, not somewhere else, It's by itself difficult. Of course, if the whole room was infected and there were cases like this, then it's much easier. But still, it is an investigation into this and each case is specific. So this is kind of more nebulous and it's always then more easy to sort of put blame. Maybe it was not here, maybe it was there. And was it really here? So this is the, co- the, the complexity compared, let's say, with the situation of cleaning, disinfecting the, the, the water. We've seen governments and businesses really recommending vaccines and masks and staying home and all those sorts of things that are obviously useful. We know that there's evidence behind them, but we haven't really heard quite as much about ventilation. Why do you think that is? Well, this, this is a very, very big problem because this is the, one of the most important measures to take. 
Otherwise, it is putting responsibility on individuals. You put the mask on, you stay home, you take all the disadvantage of the situation, and we won't do anything in terms of improving ventilation and lowering the risk. I think this this is the main reason that this is the government prefer to put the responsibility of individuals rather than taking actions in this. So that's the problem. So ultimately... Improving ventilation alone won't remove COVID from our lives, but it will help reduce the risk of infection. Because poor ventilation is everywhere. Even Lydia, our ventilation expert, still managed to catch COVID the other day. And guess where? At the conference, uh, and interestingly, this was a ventilation conference. uh, And when I sent an email to my family, Instead of taking pity of me, they all laughed that you got COVID at the <laughs> ventilation conference, which wasn't very considered. But the point is that it is this, it is that situation, particularly social situations. So whether it was the, the dinner when I entered and I realized immediately that this is the wrong place, but I was a guest of honor during that conference and I wouldn't, uh, during the dinner, you cannot keep your mask on, you can't do anything. So that was the situation, shall I take this risk or shouldn't I take? I took the risk and we saw what happened. Distinguished Professor Lydia Morawska, a ventilation expert from the University, Queensland University of Technology, finishing us off there. And Norman Ford, it's worth having the CO2 monitor at home when we did have a positive case in the house was actually really useful. We kept all the windows open, kept an eye on the monitor and no one in the house caught COVID, amazingly. Last week, an important paper on the results of a huge randomised trial of vitamin D supplementation was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The accompanying editorial argued that for the vast majority of people, there was no rationale or evidence to support taking vitamin D supplements, even if your levels are low. One of the editorial's authors was Professor Stephen Cummings of the University of California, San Francisco. I spoke to him earlier. It was a randomised trial comparing vitamin D, 2,000 international units per day, to a placebo in 26,000 people over the age of 50. And the trial had several components. This one was about fractures. The others have been about other major conditions, such as heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, migraine headaches, many major diseases. In this trial, the fracture trial, Vitamin D supplements did not reduce the risk of any type of fracture. There was absolutely no effect. And importantly, there was no effect in those people whose vitamin D level was low when they started. That means no effect in those who had what's called vitamin D deficiency. No benefit. So the point you make in the editorial is that there's now almost no reason for taking vitamin D supplements. Well, it's true that the same thing, no effect, has been found for every major disease. Heart disease, cancer, stroke, any of the major diseases. And in those cases, there was no benefit for those whose levels of vitamin D were low or deficient. So there is no justification that I can see for otherwise healthy or just ordinary people in the population 
to be taking vitamin D supplements. Now, you can see why that argument might be for cancer and heart disease, because that was inferred from large studies. I think the University of California, San Diego, did a large study, but it wasn't randomized, suggesting that it protected against bowel cancer and heart disease, but it's not really part of the known function of vitamin D. But bones are core business for vitamin D. Why would vitamin D supplements not work on fractures? Yes, it was widely believed that because vitamin D has a role in absorbing calcium from the intestine, that it would therefore reduce the risk of fractures. The bones are, of course, made from calcium. But it turns out that vitamin D is not a vitamin. It's not something that's essential you get from your diet. Vitamin D is a hormone. Vitamin D that you take as a supplement is a pro-hormone, part of a system that the body tightly controls to make sure that it has enough of the active form of the vitamin. So taking vitamin D does not necessarily change that balance in a favorable way. However, in people with dark skin, I mean, it's been shown, for example, in Melbourne, that Sudanese migrants, women, who live with their bodies entirely covered and don't get enough sun, get osteomalacia, their bones start to become weaker. Babies that are vitamin D deficient can get rickets. How do you tie in the two of those? Severe deficiency, we're talking about levels less than 10, do cause osteomalacia. And people who are prone to it or have signs and symptoms of osteomalacia need to be treated with vitamin D in order to treat the osteomalacia. That's different. This is diagnosing and treating a disease. And in populations such as you described, where osteomalacia or rickets is common, then that is a different story. That population needs a different attention. And it may be rational to diagnose osteomalacia. That's very different than other people, free-living people in the population, deciding that they need to take vitamin D supplements, free-leaving people whose tests show that they are deficient, less than 20 or 30. It doesn't work. So the other implication in what you say is that vitamin D testing, there's not much point in that anymore in the, the general population. In fact, in Australia, we largely got rid of vitamin D testing a few years ago and saved about $400 million a year in costs. But you don't see a point in measuring the blood level of vitamin D if supplementation doesn't work. If it doesn't work in people with levels that are high, and it doesn't work in people whose levels are low, the result of the test is meaningless. Vitamin D testing is a waste of money. In the United States, we spend over $300 million on it every year. That money could go to better things. So the book's closed now on vitamin D, apart from those high-risk populations we just mentioned. There are other people at high risk that are known, for example, to endocrinologists, because they receive a drug that causes low calcium very quickly. And those osteoporosis drugs that have that effect should probably be accompanied by vitamin D for a few weeks. There are people who've had intestinal surgery and malabsorption. They have an unusual kind of physiology. They are different. Their vitamin D is a treatment and vitamin D levels should be considered diagnostic. But vitamin D for prevention of major diseases, prevention of mortality, is just ineffective and shouldn't be done. If you look online, perhaps the most common thing that vitamin D is said to help or is promoted for is longevity. A longevity promoter, longevity supplement. 
And since it does not reduce the risk of mortality, then it is not useful for longevity. Professor Cummings, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's a pleasure to have talked with you, and I hope that our conversation makes a difference. Emeritus Professor Steve Cummings from the University of California, San Francisco. Shingles can be a painful, debilitating disease, which is why when people reach the age of 70, they're eligible for a free vaccination. Not that younger people shouldn't be vaccinated, should they wish. The trouble is that the vaccine given as part of the free vaccination schedule is not very effective. There's a much more effective vaccine available, but it isn't subsidised and costs hundreds of dollars. Professor Tony Cunningham is a virologist who has extensively researched herpes viruses. In fact, shingles is a herpes virus, or where it comes from is herpes zoster, and he's trialled shingles vaccines. Tony is head of the Centre for Virus Research at the Westmead Institute for Medical Research at the University of Sydney. Welcome back to the Health Report, Tony. Thanks, Norman. What is shingles? Shingles occurs as a reactivation of the chickenpox virus. 99% of us have uh, been infected by chickenpox by age 50, unless you've been immunised, with the program starting in 2005. And during chickenpox, the cluster of cells around the spinal cord is actually infected by the chickenpox virus and it goes to sleep for decades. And then as immunity declines, and particularly T-cell or white-cell immunity declines, uh, people can then suffer what's called reactivation of the chickenpox virus or varicella. It uh, comes to life within that cluster of cells, moves down the nerve, causing pain, and then into the skin, causing a rash. So it's pain and it's rash, which are characteristic of uh, herpes zoster or shingles. And if it follows the and it follows the eyes in the top part of the face. It can affect the Absolutely. eyes. Absolutely. So it can mm, yes. it can be quite dangerous. Indeed, I just had one of my colleagues in here, and he still got the scars. He uh, consulted me at the time and I said, make sure you see an eye doctor because if you do get shingles on the scalp and it's always on one side of the body, then there is a risk that the eye could be involved and cause blindness. So you implied that uh, age is a risk factor as your immune system declines. What other risk factors are there for shingles, for the zoster reactivation? Anything that uh, severely compromises the immune system, and that uh, includes transplantation and cancers, particularly blood cancers, and particularly transplantation for blood cancers, which is the number one precipitant for a herpes zoster. So does that mean if you get shingles, your GP should look for a tumour? This is uh, only about 3 to 5% of uh, causes of uh, shingles, mainly in the 50 to 60-year-old age groups. Uh, over the age of 70, it declines from about 1% to 2%. So the likelihood that shingles is going to be caused by those conditions uh, is, is fairly low and reasonably obvious. Now, before we get to the vaccine, just very quickly to tie off this sort of general background here, the important thing is to get antiviral treatment ASAP. Within the first three days, and uh, the best are the uh, valet cyclovir and famcyclovir. And uh, uh, I 
do treat people who have um, continuing bubbling uh, rashes, little bubbles on the skin beyond three days because that indicates that the virus is still multiplying within the skin. Now, this vaccine story seems to be a bit of a scandal to me. I mean, we're offering a free vaccine, which is great, people over 70, which is great, but it's not the most effective vaccine on the market. That, that's absolutely correct. Uh, the, uh, uh, the new shingles vaccine, which consists of a single protein and two immunostimulants, is uh, over 90% effective in people over the age of 70 and people over the age of 80. It's safe, which the other vaccine, which is a live attenuated vaccine, is not in immune-compromised people. So uh, it's, uh, and in fact, the latest studies that we published last year showed that the vaccine uh, diminishes little over seven years. It's still 85% effective in the last two years of that seven years. Overall, about 90% effective, and the 10-year results will be available soon. And the one that's available, how does that compare? Well, I mean, they're both available, but the one that's available on the free schedule... Yeah, the live attenuated vaccine declines over a period of eight years and it declines with age. So it's only over the age of uh, 70, it's only about 40% effective. And um, over eight years, it declines the two, two key studies between 10 and 40% of original efficacy. So, um, so, we, pride so ourselves, no. we pride ourselves on evidence-based vaccines. We've got a TAGI. How come we're giving the least effective one? Is this all about money? Yeah, I think it is uh, probably about money, but I'm not privy to those negotiations between uh, GSK, the manufacturer, and the uh, government. You, I think <laughs> probably best to talk to them. But do remember that when GSK went to the government four years ago, this was at a time when people were becoming aware that um, the live attenuated vaccine efficacy was falling off and we didn't have clear data on the durability of the new uh, shingles vaccine, the recombinant zoster vaccine or Shingrix. I should just get a declaration from you. Do you have any financial conflicts of interest with the vaccines here? Yes, I do. Uh, I've, uh, um, or at least my institution does. Uh, I actually trialled uh, Shingrix with GSK. I've been uh, consulting with them uh, since 1992, first on the herpes simplex vaccine and then this one because of my original research. And I have received honoraria which have gone to my institution. I've been chair of their publications committee and I've been chair of the uh, um, advisory committee also for the live attenuated vaccine for Sequiros. So, given that, you, you stand by the evidence. Um, what do you think the government should do? Well, uh, I think it's up to GSK now, and you should talk to them, <laughs> uh, to approach the uh, government uh, to present this new data on duration of efficacy and, uh, and also to present data uh, on... Uh, uh, on the cost effectiveness of the uh, uh, shingles vaccine. Um, I think um, uh, there, there are some issues regarding how uh, vaccine 
efficacy and effectiveness is judged uh, over a, a period of years. Obviously, when you're talking about drugs, they have only a short-term impact and uh, vaccines like this have a very long-term impact. I'm sure that we'll see one day this vaccine on the National Immunisation Programme. Tony, thanks for joining us. A pleasure, Norman. Professor Tony Cunningham is head of the Centre for Virus Research at the Westmead Institute for Medical Research at the University of Sydney. I did get an unattributable comment from somebody who knows what's going on or claims to know what's going on and that the drug company was unprepared to reduce the price of the drug and it didn't meet their cost effectiveness data. But we will seek a comment from the Department of Health. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. I'm Tegan Taylor. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.